This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are indeed listening to Green in the Apocalypse on 102.7 FM 3 Triple R. Green in the Apocalypse is your weekly dose of future thinkers and solutions oriented tinkerers. How are you, Sarah Coles? I have Karoshi. What is that? You know, death by overwork? Oh, yes. That's what I feel like. I just work all day at the Japanese Inn. Um, Doing a lot of, it's called a Japanese immersion package, where people have the full Japanese experience. Now I sound like an advert. That wasn't my intention. <laughs> what, really what, what is the full Japanese experience? Like um, heated toilets with squirty bidets. <laughs> yeah, um, really small apartments squeaky. that are too warm from heated toilet seat. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yep, dating booths that you slide into. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, what, what, tell me more. Um, it's just a very small inn yeah. in the countryside. It only has six rooms, six yeah. guest rooms. Uh-huh. And you just eat Japanese food, stay in a Japanese room, get Japanese massages. It's pretty great, except then a kangaroo bounds across and ruins everything, or a wombat. Oh, it takes away from the Japanese ambiance. Yeah. With its marsupialness. critters. <laughs> yeah. I'm tired. Well, thanks for showing up. Um, it's okay. Good, good. We, neither of us has been on the radio for a couple of weeks, and um, I should mention Adam is my name. How, how I are you? I am not bushy. Uh, I'm quite, I'm quite well. Bushy, unfortunately, has mm. got yeah, quite a formidable he's lurgy. Got the plague. Yeah, he's we've, we've missed he's literally you guys. got boils. We've missed you. Oh, thank you, Jed. That thanks, is the Jed. voice of our smooth operator, Jed McCartney. How do you, how do you go? I'm good. Yeah, I'm well. I, I, <laughs> yeah, which is good. I, I'm avoiding all those people that are not well, like yeah. bushy. And Keep them like a hundred kilometres yeah. away on the mountain. Hey, it's been a really good. It's been really nice listening from home. It's been a couple of weeks of excellent radio. Well yeah. done, mate. Yeah, yeah, no. I, um, it was interesting last week. That guy was very interesting. Yeah, what was his name? Alistair, Alistair McIntosh. The, the he was Scotsman. so great. People should maybe, if they haven't listened to it, listen to the podcast of that one. Yeah. I love that guy. He was he slayed Murdoch and Trump in the same <laughs> sentence. I was listening from home, whooping. Yeah, he was yeah talking about how he, he comes from the same uh, religious Presbyterian Islander, Scottish Islander heritage, but how they've managed to turn uh, the formidable force that he gained from that to the dark side. It was good radio. Uh, well, we... Don't have a guest in the studio tonight, but Sarah and I spoke to the very singular KMO about a week ago, didn't we? 
KMO is a US-based radio producer who is best known for his podcast, The Sea Realm, where C stands for consciousness. You hear that refrain a lot if you listen to it. He's been making it since 2006 when the word podcast was a new word. And I figured out that between this and his other radio outlets, he's actually produced more hours of radio than This American Life. Uh, which usually takes the form of these long, f- long form interviews with smart people, and there's actually a lot of topic overlap with what we do at Green in the Apocalypse. And I've pretty much been listening to him the whole time. And several of the people we've had on the show I actually heard first on the Sea Realm. So basically, you've been picking off his guests. For pretty our much, show. pretty much. Nice. <laughs> uh, and he's also he. And you know, I, I don't know how much you've heard of him, but he, you always. I always think, what a, I wish I could emulate KMO's interview technique. He's very smart and he's very pointed. And he's also a very reflective commentator himself. He takes a deep breath before he articulates himself very clearly, and often he's navigating some controversial or extreme kind of terrain. And I, I, it's like an American Christos Tolkis. <laughs> he does that. He Christos really pauses before he answers a question. He does. That's true. And I, and I love both their voices. Um, although I do have a bone to pick with said Christos. But anyway, we, let's move on from that. Um, <laughs> let's not start the war with them until <laughs> they walk into the studio. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, a former guest of both the Sea Realm and Greening the Apocalypse is permaculture co-originator David Holmgren. And he has a book called Future Scenarios, which talks about four broadly quite different ways that civilization could go in the future. Are you with me? Mm-hmm. And one of those ways is kind of like a continuation of the path we're on now, but maybe even an acceleration of it, which is the, uh, I forget his name for it, but it's like the technological explosion where, you know, computers get better and better, all technology gets better and better, and more and more humans can live on the planet by virtue of that. And another scenario, which he talks about, that the world could go, is a, the opposite way, like a rapid and fairly severe collapse. Yes. <laughs> well, well, that emotional response KMO might come to later. Yeah. So hold that thought. Uh, but he, there's two other scenarios. One is a much more gentle descent, one that mirrors Boring. the ascent <laughs> that humanity's been on for the last several generations. Boring. Where the, we just one. we just have a little bit oh. less year on year than we did before. And over the course of generations, we learn to live within the carrying capacity of the earth again. And yes, it doesn't make very good TV. It doesn't make very good novels because it isn't one of those two extremes. But David thinks it's the most likely scenario of all. What he thinks is the least likely scenario, there's one that I haven't mentioned. And that's what he calls green tech stability. That's where we more or less stabilize at a level of you know, lifestyle that we expect and have come, you know, just in the last couple of generations to enjoy. The only difference being that we're all driving Priuses or Teslas and we've all changed our light bulbs. You know, maybe we're e-commuting a bit more and maybe we're buying a bit more local food, but more or less our expectations for the amount of consumption continue. He thinks that is the least likely. Now, the reason I bring that up is that well, so you heard, you heard this, Sarah, KMO. He's also started doing live radio recently in uh, Vermont, where he, where he lives, on a radio station called WOOL, Black Sheep Radio. And during a recent episode of that, 
a guest failed to turn up. And KMO had about an hour to fill. And off the cuff, he told a personal story of his journey, uh, one that takes in both extremes of those, in terms of his future outlook, what's likely to happen, of, of those four scenarios that I talked about of David Holmgren's. KMO, when he started his podcast... He was a techno-utopianist. He believed in the singularity, and that's a phrase he'll use in the interview, um, that idea that we reach such computing capacity that there are superintelligences and all bets are kind of off. You can't predict what happens after that. Uh, so the extreme end of techno-utopia, actually. And it was through his radio show he um, started interviewing people from the perhaps the other end of the spectrum. And he's going to mention a couple of names, Dmitry Orlov, who uh, he will explain a little bit of Dmitry's thinking. And he's going to mention James Howard Kunzler, who is uh, one of the most biting and sharp-tongued and quite funny critics of American culture at its, at its crassest. And he talks about famously how suburbia is the greatest misallocation of resources that humanity has ever created and he's a believer in peak oil, the idea that there's going to be less and less resources year on year and that we're going to enter in either a descent or a collapse scenario. And so KMO's personal story um, takes in these extremes. And so after listening to this, which Sarah and I both did, we thought, let's get him on the radio because this is so apt for what, um, what we've been talking about lately on Green in the Apocalypse. So we probably should throw to our interview with KMO without uh, further ado. It's a really uh, interesting one. Yeah. I really enjoyed talking to KMO, especially after hearing his voice for so long. So this is our interview from last week, talking to KMO from Vermont. Well, maybe just by way of introduction, KMO. So a lot of the things that we have covered on this show in the past have had, informing them, if not even stated that explicitly, limit the concept of limits to growth that humans might be in a state of overshoot of the carrying capacity of the earth and that there is a day of reckoning coming, even if that's not like all of a sudden, but, you know, that future generations might have to pay for our excesses. Uh, last week, well, actually, when people will hear this, it might be several weeks back, but we talked about the idea of superintelligence with Adam Ford, who's a local expert on that topic, and both the scary kind of scenarios as well as some possible extremely utopian ones that could come as machines vastly surpass human intelligence. And I know that your own personal story actually takes in all of these themes. So I was wondering... It does. (laughs) um, Tell us your origin story, if you will. All right. Um, I'm going to condense it quite a bit, if you don't mind. I know yeah, you've, you've that's probably, probably heard a longer version, <laughs> and maybe you can you can point people to a longer version. But um, I have been a science fiction fan my whole life. When I was in university, I studied philosophy of mind and philosophy of science, and I focused on artificial intelligence, not uh, at the implementation level, but at the theoretical level of you know what does it mean to be a mind? What is knowledge? Um, How much information do you have to have about the world before you start making rational decisions about how you're going to behave in it, that sort of thing? And I was, uh, before the term was really even uh, popular, 
uh, I was a singularitarian. I mean, it, I didn't use the term early on, but I, I did think that uh, a moment of uh, rapid change was approaching and that it would be a result of the convergence of artificial intelligence, robotics, and nanotechnology. And I thought that was an unambiguously good thing on the horizon. So this is early 90s I'm talking about. And then I got a job with Amazon.com early on. Uh, got, I worked there for two years, and it wasn't a lot of fun actually doing it. But, you know, at, at the time, it was exciting. It was obvious the company was going someplace. So when I started, the whole company, other than the one warehouse, was located on a single floor of an office building in Seattle. Uh, I had three interviews for that job. The final one was with Jeff Bezos. Um, he used to be in an office just down the hall from where I worked and the conference room where he would meet with people was right next to where I worked and he's got this big booming laugh like Jabba the Hutt basically and uh, we, we would just hear that laughter just rolling through the rooms as we were sitting there either sending emails to customers or talking to them on the phone but uh, being there at that time you know making a lot of money in a short period with tech when I already had these ideas about what a marvelous thing you know information technology was and what wonderful place it was taking us to it just really cemented that in my mind so when i started the c-realm podcast and i i started podcasting shortly after i discovered that you know such a thing existed uh, i was very interested in talking to techno utopian people like ray kurzweil who was not nearly as well known then as he is now so it wasn't i wasn't shooting for the moon by thinking i was going to get him as an early guest and um None of the people that I wrote to in that field wrote back to me, basically. They, they didn't answer my, my calls for content. But other people did. And I got an early interview uh, with Dmitry Orlov. And it was he didn't have a blog at the time. He hadn't published any books. He had a, uh, a PowerPoint presentation online. It was just his slides plus the text. And it was closing the collapse gap, talking about the Soviet Union and its collapse and the potential of you know, similar path to the United States. And so once I got Dmitry Orlov on the program, other people who were interested in peak oil started approaching me about being on the program. And that's how I got in touch with um, uh, Albert Bates, who is the director of the Eco Village Training Center at the farm in Summertown, Tennessee, where I actually ended up living for a couple of years. Um, actually, I pursued James Howard Kunstler early on. So he was another early peak oil voice that I got on the show. And, you know, once I've had Dimitri and Albert and uh, Jim Kunstler on the show, then, you know, I've got uh, a calling card that I can say, this is the sort of show I'm doing. Here's some past episodes with people you might know. And then it was easier to get guests. And that just started rolling in that direction. When I started the podcast, I had no interest whatsoever in peak oil. It was very much a techno-utopian. Uh, I was against the drug war, so I wanted to talk about that with people, but I got bored with that topic pretty early on. And uh, then my personal financial situation, uh, you know, it, it diminished greatly, we'll say. And uh, I didn't have much prospect for re-entering the, uh, the easy fields that I had been grazing in prior. And uh, my, I took a turn for the dark in terms of my worldview. And I started gravitating not just to peak oil, but to, um, you know, other tales of impending calamity. And there's always somebody online who is trying to sell gold who will hype any, you know, any report or any forecast or any prognostication of, you know, impending financial doom. So uh, I, I took in some of that as well. And over a matter of years of this sort of echo chamber, selective listening, you know, painting, you know, cherry picking data to get the, the gloomiest forecast possible, uh, I realized the psychological element to it and uh, pulled back from it deliberately and also just uh, sort of in a personal reaction. I was... 
uh, chagrined that I had had particular people on my program and, and given them a platform. So um, even your Jim Kunstlers and your Dmitry Olovs, who I should say for listeners are people we haven't had on this show, but uh, very much of the set of, <laughs> of people that we well, would li- would interview. Jim Kunstler's a fun guy to hang out with. He's a fun guy to be around. He's a fun guy for me to listen to. Uh, his his persona in print is very different from his real life persona and his persona on the podcast. Uh, so I, I'm always just happy to talk to him. It's a fun experience. Dimitri, uh, he's got some views that I think are uh, a little a little raw, a little rugged, maybe for uh, you and your audience. And uh, I understand that. What I like about Dimitri, he's it's really gratifying to interview him because he doesn't stick to talking points. If you talk to somebody who's pushing a book or they have a very respectable mainstream uh, sort of place in the world like Bill McKibben, they're really on their talking points and you can't get them off. I mean, they have prepared things that they're going to say and you won't get them to say anything else. And that's really frustrating. Well, since so Dimitri- our listeners haven't heard Dimitri speak, maybe you could give us just a... Uh, a brief about that article that you interviewed him about way back closing the collapse gap oh that that's a dangerous one because that is the seed for so much of his later work and i can go on and on about it but uh uh he was i think 12 years old when he left the soviet union he was born you know in the soviet union and his parents got out when he was a child he studied english when he was there but under a british tutor i think so uh, they came to the united states and as he says he spoke like little lloyd little lord fauntleroy which got him you know no uh, no end of trouble at school but uh, he went back he's an engineer by the way so he's a very technically minded person uh, he works doing a lot to, with artificial intelligence in fact although um, he he is definitely not a techno utopian not a singularitarian he does not think that uh, we should really be fretting over artificial intelligence but he did get to go back to the soviet union just before it collapsed and then he went back to russia just after the collapse and he saw you know what a really rough place it was at the time and he started thinking about what led to the collapse and what uh, more importantly what mitigated the collapse for the soviets because you know they didn't they had state provided housing so nobody got kicked out of their house there was no foreclosure crisis uh, they had socialized medicine so there was there was not a crisis of people not being able to afford their medical insurance anymore. Not very many people had cars to start with. So, uh, you know, and, and they're a Petro state anyway. So peak oil wasn't really a problem. And uh, the subways kept running and, you know, people could get on them. Uh, and so there was, there was a lot happening, just not from wise planning on the part of the Soviet planners, but just as it so happened, uh, they were in a better position to weather collapse than the United States would be. And when he was talking about this in 2007, 2008, uh, I think we all thought that the collapse would be visible and undeniable here in the United States by that time. And, you know, if you're dedicated to the idea that there is a collapse underway, then you can look around and see it. But if you're not dedicated to that idea, it's quite easy to look around and say, look, things are fine. Things are normal. So what is all this collapse talk? Uh, But anyway, I'm, I'm... Drifting away from Dmitry Orlov, that's, that's Dmitry, that was his presentation in a nutshell, that the Soviet Union was better prepared to survive their collapse than we are to survive ours, and uh, ours is coming. Mm. And so you said that you interviewed Orlov and James Kunzler and uh, these characters, but it wasn't until you lost your job and, and uh, found yourself in financial straits that the message really 
took hold? It's not that I lost a job. It's that I'd spent all the money I made at Amazon. It took several years to do it. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, actually, I was already in pretty tight financial straits when I started the podcast, but my techno-optimism and uh, libertarian can-do spirit was still holding strong you know, from my previous life. It took a while to erode away. How deep did you go into the pits of despair and, and uh, thinking about future prospects for the world rather than yourself i mean fairly deep you know he's he's probably a well-known name now but he wasn't so much then uh when i was working at comcast which was uh, i did a tech support job very similar to the sort of job i did at amazon but for much less money uh i would i had an hour's drive to work so two hours on the road every day and when i was really doing well, I would use that time to memorize poetry, like you, you heard at the, during the sound check. But when I wasn't doing so well, I would listen to Alex Jones. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, I got a, a whopping dose of uh, global conspiracy theory to go with my peak oil and, uh, you know, climate change worries and all the rest of it, you know, impending financial collapse. Uh, that was probably my, my deepest point. And that was when I was going through a divorce and having a custody battle, you know, with my soon-to-be ex-wife. And uh, it was just a really, really low point for me. And so I was seeking out confirmation that the world is the worst possible place. Yep. And <laughs> have you heard Alex done as Bon Iver, by the way? There's a great track where he's done as a folk song. I have. It's probably it's the brilliant. best thing on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, so I'm really, you know, cautious about going down this route, but I, I did find it an interesting talking point on your podcast where you inferred that perhaps some of that, like you're saying, thinking that the world might collapse was, in, in some part it was gratifying to your ego, which was suffering at the time, but... Oh, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to talk about because we're opening the book on criticism by, by criticizing ourselves here. But how, how much of, your, of that perspective do you think was actually informed by an underlying psychological need? Oh, maybe 40%, but, you know, that's quite a boost. And so, in, so you're someone that started off reading Ray Kurzweil which is about as techno-utopian as you can possibly get. And for those who haven't read The Age of Spiritual Machines, and he's got a new book, I forget, or more recent book, I forget what that's called, um, Ray Kurzweil represents the idea that technological advancement will basically get human beings um, escape from this scratching-the-earth existence and literally out of our bodies into... A singularity scenario where we're freed from all physical restraints. Correct. Yes. Yeah. That is correct. And then, so you went from that extreme through to someone who thought that the world, as we know it, is likely to end in a much more calamitous sense. Now, I actually personally went through a bit of a, a similar path. I read Kurzweil back in the nineties, and I was in IT. And at a certain point, as I started to learn about peak oil and resource depletion, I thought I'd better get out of it because it didn't seem like a career that was going to be of very much use in an age of um, where pickaxes might be one of the primary technologies. 
Now, not that I necessarily thought it would go that far, but it definitely seemed worth considering that having more grounded skills, having ones that are universally applicable in all sorts of future scenarios, uh, just was psychologically really helpful. Um, so, but you you've you went from very high as I did in terms of techno utopianism down to very low in terms of doomerism, and where are you sitting these days? I'm focused on a, I would say, a more personal level. I mean, I'm about to turn 50 and my, I don't really have a career. It's like I haven't decided what I'm going to be when I grow up yet. But, um, you know, I've, I've got a wish list, but uh, i got to really work to make the wish list happen. So that's really where my focus is in terms of, you know, what is the world like? Well, the world is, for me, largely dependent on my efforts. And I think that would be true in a techno-utopian scenario because, you know, if all of our, our physical wants are provided for, then we're going to have a, a fairly intense competition, I think, for recognition and social status. And uh, in a collapse scenario, again, it's, it's going to be the, the personal efforts and, and self-discipline and dynamism of uh, an individual and the community that they're embedded in, which is going to determine how well they do relative, you know, to that scenario. So... I think that's a pretty good place to focus. And on the abstract level, I'm still interested in all the things we've been talking about. You know, peak oil, uh, population overshoot, artificial intelligence, uh, all of that. It's still intensely interesting to me. But I'm not so emotionally invested in any of it. When, when you were a doomer, did you ever wish that civilization would hurry up and collapse? Like, were you excited? Uh, no, because I had young children at the time and I couldn't really bring myself to wish for them to be thrust into that. Yeah. So, yeah, it was always anxiety, not, uh, you know, not a, a secret wish to see the whole system be brought down. I'm with you there. Uh, yeah. We were speaking earlier about how one thing I do find myself suffering from, though, is every time I hear some bad news on the global sense that... Uh, is in line with things I've said in the past. There's a little bit of ego involved when I hear the bad news going, see, I told you so. Yeah. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's hard to get over that one. Even when I was in the, the depths of my Doomer phase, uh, one of the, the core tenets of uh, the message that I was trying to spread to other people who had similar interests was don't expect to be vindicated ever. <laughs> You know, the people who who thought you were crazy or just uh, really selfishly wallowing in nihilism before the collapse will not look to you after the collapse and say, oh, you were right. Thank you for bringing us this message. In fact, they're likely to blame you, you know, like in the same way that the weatherman gets blamed for bad weather. <laughs> you manifested. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Your negativity brought us all to this point. <laughs> oh, it's probably so, too true. So, um... What would you say, are you now living with more doubt about where the truth lies? And are you happier now? I've always been committed to um, what I call epistemological humility, which is a fancy way of saying, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I don't really know anything. I have strong intuitions and I'm predisposed to think in certain ways. But you know, really following um, Robert Anton Wilson and, and Terrence McKenna, I've, I've for a very long time, since long before I started the podcast, I thought that, you know, uh, reality, our individual realities are what um, Robert Anton Wilson called belief systems, which he abbreviated as BS. 
Uh, I don't know if that if that reads in Australia, but um, <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. okay. And you know, Terence McKenna was also one who preached the message of epistemological humility. That's you know, it's just ridiculous and um, and really grandiose of us to think that our brains, which have been evolved to help us survive, as you know, as he would say, pack hunting apes, but as I would say, uh, you know, socially cooperative beings that our minds are uh, equipped to understand the entire universe. You know, they were evolved to serve a specific function, and that is to keep us alive, you know, in a particular environment, not necessarily to plumb the depths of, uh, you know, the mysteries of the universe. And so I've always, at least on a philosophical level, stayed committed to that idea that uh, I, I am agnostic and it's not that I choose to, you know, not take sides. It's just that I can't really commit to anything that I can't prove. And I don't know how to prove the things that are most important. You know, like, is there a God or is there a life after death or is there something to consciousness beyond the brain? I mean, these are just questions which, as far as I can tell, are evidence transcendent. There's not anything you can show me or say to me that's going to tell me that you are absolutely in command of the facts over these questions. So, uh, no, I'm, I'm not... I wouldn't say that my level of certainty has changed. It's just the emotional valence that I attach to the the images, you know, in my mind. That's what's changed. Hmm. If if we talk about the Duma perspective and the techno utopian perspective, each of them has an internal logic, which, if you're in the throes of it, is very uh, it, it's very captivating. And, and, yes. and I think there's a lot of truth to both perspectives. Uh, it's just th- their framing and and, and their context um, isn't always complete. For for instance, like it's it, we currently live uh, our lives are based on fossil fuels. There's a limited amount of them. We don't really have a way figured out of that yet. And to think that we're going to continue on a growth pattern requires a certain amount of faith in our ingenuity and technology to overcome challenges that we haven't overcome yet and they're possibly the biggest challenge that we have to face and yet from the techno-utopian perspective uh, there's actually a really long track record now of Moore's Law and and a strong argument that every technological step we take creates the, the foundation for the next one and it really feels like the, these two extremes are actually like both are pretty interesting horses to back yet it's very hard to find uh, a way of thinking about about uh, that in a way which brings them together in like like do you think it has to go definitely one way or the other or could we see some kind of fusion type future where there's where automation and computer technology creates a class of mega wealthy owners of that technology with AI, and then it could be Duma for the rest of us. Right. Well, when people ask, you know, what will the future be like, I tend to ask, what is the present like? You know, if you live in Silicon Valley, it's one way. If you live in, you know, Nigeria, it's a different way. If you live in Russia, it looks, you know, different yet. And if you live in China, it depends on what parts of China you live in. You might live in a 
high-tech seeming utopia or you might live in a very poor rural setting where people are really just struggling to survive and the economy is dependent on those two or three people who went and got jobs in the big factories in the cities. Uh, so I think the future will be the same. Uh, it will be very different for you know, different groups of people and the lows will be... Like, I'm, I really like the, uh, the fiction of a guy named Paolo Bacigalupi. Oh, yeah. The He's wine the author of Chronicle. The Wine Girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Shipbreaker and The Drowned Cities and uh, The Water Knife. These are stories that you know show us that technology will continue to produce uh, you know new abilities for humanity, but the underlying resource constraints will not allow those you know those blessings really to be equally and evenly distributed, and not just you know the resource limits, but also just the. Uh, you know, the capitalist system and uh, the way that humans have always motivated, you know, one another to do work and not distribute the benefits equally. So, yeah, I, I see that coming. You know, the techno-utopians dismiss really anything that a doomer would have to say. They're not worried about climate change because, you know, nanobots in the atmosphere will fix that over the course of an afternoon. Uh, they're not worried about resource constraints because innovation, or whatever. I, I think they have a huge blind spot there. But then on the Doomer side, there's a complete rejection of the idea that technology has any role to play in determining the course that human civilization will take over the next century or so. And I started the podcast in 2006, which I think, I haven't, I haven't double-checked this, but I think that was the year that the iPhone was introduced. Now think about how much smartphones and social media have changed your experience of life, you know? It's, they haven't changed the world. The buildings still look about the same. Cars are recognizable. But your daily habits and experience of the world being connected to social media with something that you carry around in your hand has really changed your experience of the world. Now, imagine if I had just – and I, I did to some extent. But you know, I sided with the Doomers in 2006 and said, this technology stuff, that's irrelevant. That's going away Pretty soon, what you really have to worry about is learning how to garden and uh, breed animals and, you know, take care of yourself. Well, here we are 11 years later, and that smartphone thing has really turned out to be something pretty significant, at least in the short term. And if you don't know how to drive a team of mules or shoe a horse or milk a cow, well, you're probably okay. So, you know, had I completely devoted myself to the Doomer perspective, as some of the people that I like to talk to about those issues have... I would really have nothing to say about the transformation of human consciousness as a result of technology over the past decade, which to me has been pretty significant. So it's okay if I live tweet my friend milking a cow? Well, like, I'll just hang out with farmers, but I'll be engaged with technology. It's all going to work out. You know, if you have the means to both milk a cow and uh, send tweets, then that <laughs> seems like a, a pretty good outcome, really. A pretty good – there are much worse scenarios. Maybe in the future there will be robot cows that will send tweets. That's probably what's going to happen. <laughs> when you Not talk sure what about the point of the this, robot cows are. <laughs> I just picture like um, in the future there will be this seaweed farm in the ocean, you know, farming seaweed so it can capture the carbon – and then, the, and there'll be people in rocking chairs sitting on the porch of the seaweed farm, defending it from like everyone else. I feel like it's just going to be chaos. <laughs> I'm freaked out. About well, there's it. chaos now. Yeah, that's true. Well, well, we, and, we'll you know, most people live through it. Um, you're listening to a pre-recorded interview that Adam and I did with KMO. 
Um, I'm sorry for anything that I said during the interview. <laughs> Two smart people, one idiot. <laughs> he actually listened to our Tim Flannery interview, so he got that oh, reference, which was Tim Flannery was talking about massive seaweed farms to offset um, climate change. <laughs> yeah, it was an obscure reference at best. You are listening to a Triple R podcast. Podcast, is that right? <laughs> well, we, we warned you this could be a little bit hokey, but um, how do you feel about... So, so we're admitting that none of us can really predict which way the future is going to go. It's a chaotic system. But there are things that inform how hopeful we feel. And I was at an EcoCities conference a month or two ago, and I started like making a list and column A is reasons to be cheerful, and column B is reasons to freak out. And I just thought, well, let's, I don't know, in a very loose sense, you know, do a kind of what's, <laughs> what's trending or what's hot, what's not <laughs> type list. It's not a very deep method, but I, I don't know. What, what gives you um, hope? Let's start there. Do you want to list a few things? I, you know, I don't feel the need to reach for hopeful items to hang on to right now. Really? Um, yeah. Well, there goes that artifice <laughs> for, I mean, for our conversation. We can still, we can still play with that. <laughs> like. uh, I am I'm really encouraged. You know, the last time I, I spoke to uh, anybody for Australian radio, it was in early 2016. And uh, I spent a good part of the interview just explaining who Bernie Sanders was, which, you know, in retrospect is, is kind of wasted time because he's, he's well known now. But um, he raised a very significant challenge to the mainstream Democratic candidate uh, against the will of his party. You know, it's, it's the, the Democrats got sued for violating their own charter and, you know, not being impartial. And it was their argument was that, look, the, the charter language is just nice, pretty talk and it doesn't mean anything and we can choose our candidates however we want. And the judge agreed. But, you know, Bernie Sanders, he got enough money just from, you know, raising money from normal people, not billionaires, you know, not big institutions. And he... He mounted a serious, very viable, and almost won, you know, challenge to, to Hillary Clinton, who got her money from Wall Street. So that demonstrates to me that it is possible to, you know, it, it's not a matter of he who spends the most wins. And, you know, he who spends the most is the one who courts the, the oligarchs. So I'm really hopeful about that. I mean, that is an amazing precedent. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure that it translates to your, or your political system, but... Uh, you know, I, I think there will be analogous events happening for you as well, that through the Internet, through social media, through people, you know, really exchanging ideas that are unpalatable to the mainstream media, because the mainstream media has to serve the interests of power, particularly financial power, that uh, we can have things like, you know, the Bernie Sanders candidacy. And th there will be other methods that uh, humans will use using technology to organize and thwart the will of those currently in pretty much unopposed power. So that's, that's exciting to me, and that's hopeful. Okay. Well, there's something for column A. Sarah, you got anything? Um, I've only got one thing. What, you, you've got a list? Do you have column there's A? There's only one thing I'm hopeful. <laughs> okay. Jesus. There's going to be more calamari. 
What? Because of global warming, <laughs> the Humboldt squid population has escalated and they can grow to six foot long and they weigh 45 kilograms. All right, that's so awesome. You can cook it with white beans, uh-huh. have a Sicilian meal. Yeah, There's yeah. going to be a lot of that in my future. Yeah, yeah. That's it for our oh, wild apples by the roadside. Yeah. That's it. Okay. Social capital. I left that off. I was being a smart ass. But I'm hopeful <laughs> about uh, connect, uh, proper connections with. I feel like I know some very good people who have my back. All right. So I'm hopeful. That's, that's at a very personal level. Um, that, yeah, you'll get some calamari rings and people who got your back who can milk cows yeah. um, get in the picture. Well, all right. Well, uh, can, can, I th- can we make it more conversational, KMO? I'll throw in a few ideas. You tell me what you think. This is what It's I, your show. Yeah. <laughs> damn, damn straight. Thank you. One of the things I, I thought I... Well, that it surprised me that I didn't see coming when I was in the peak oil scene was that just the speed at which solar PV in particular and wind power also uh, have grown. PV grew 50% solar photo- photovoltaic in 2016. Um, it's still, I think, only 1% of the global energy mix. That might even be 1% of global electricity. So it's kind of just... In the noise, it's not like a, it's not like it's actually providing that much electricity yet. All the solar PV in the world, but still, it's growing incredibly fast. One one thing I, I've co-authored a book along these lines. Simple living is actually very enjoyable, and it gets you out of some of the stress of the day-to-day living of being in the rat race, and connects you to a whole lot of simple skills which are just inherently enjoyable to do, and gives you more time just to bliss out and appreciate the simple things. Um, so coming coming down from the peak of middle class consumerism doesn't have to be such a terrible thing. That gives me hope. Yeah. Network knowledge. You've had people on from the P2P Foundation on your show. That kind of information sharing, uh, some of the culture that comes from open source software being applied to things out in the real world, uh, open source blueprints for machinery and the ability to rapidly test and improve and do that at a community level that gives me some definite hope technology wise just things like rocket stoves the fact that you know do you know what they are i do yeah so so something that is very low tech that somebody could have figured out in the stone age you know this this too sir it's a way of burning fuel which is way more efficient than just an open fire or a or a kunara heater which is a fan force thing we have in australia just way more efficient at turning wood into heat energy and it's just so low tech you can do it with bricks and mud but we only just figured that out that there are still low there's still some things like that that gives me hope and oh god to be honest that's like the most notable ones on there <laughs> well, well, that it, works it, <laughs> I, I wrote that we're less stabby than we used to be i mean i do think that's <laughs> less stabby like it's just in general in apparently according to Steven Pinker a lot less crime now uh, or violent crime or violent death in general than there used to be but yeah just sh- humans given a certain backdrop uh, of without resource scarcity although that could put this quickly into column B uh, tend to tend to prefer not killing each other yeah yeah no that's true yeah Column B is a lot longer. 
I don't know. Have you got anything, Sarah Coles? In what? Things that I'm afraid will happen? Yeah. Oh, I mean, so many things. We've often um, been accused on this show of being too negative. People listen to it and then say it's like being kicked in the balls. <laughs> like, it's just every week we're talking about the things that we're afraid of um, and then trying to come up with solutions that even it up. But, um... Yeah. I don't know. That I guess... I'm a bit afraid of greenwash, so um, I'm afraid of compostable bioplastics and Elon Musk and... Okay, that's, of... that's a can of worms, <laughs> calling him greenwash. Well, I'm just but... afraid of the... I'm afraid that things that are being framed as solutions might not be, mm. and that scares me. Mm. Yeah. Well, this isn't about Elon Musk specifically. This is just about the, the lords of technical you know, techno-utopianism and the Lords of Silicon Valley in general. But I was in San Francisco uh, in 2013. And San Francisco, you know, that's where Google and um, Facebook and so many other, you know, companies in that realm are, are located. And prices have gone through the roof. You know, real estate prices are absurd. Uh, people who have lived there their whole lives are being priced out and forced to move. And there's a serious homeless problem in and around San Francisco. And you would think that if the the Silicon Valley, you know, saviors were going to fix the entire world with technology, they'd start where they live. But it's it's such a, a glaring display of inequality and misused, misallocated resources that uh, it doesn't give me any sort of hope whatsoever that their vision is going to transform the world positively for everyone. You know, Ray Kurzweil has this line about how we don't need a breakthrough that's going to allow us to live forever today. We just need to take advantage of all the breakthroughs that add one or two years to your life expectancy each year. And uh, eventually you'll get to the point where, you know, once, once technology is adding more than a year to your expected lifespan in any given year, then you're essentially immortal. And eventually the things that he's really dreaming of, you know, being able to upload his personality, that will come along in due time. But, you know, uh, just regular, more mundane, prosaic style of medicine is going to keep us alive basically indefinitely. And, uh, you know, I hear that and I understand the logic behind it. But at the same time, I don't have access to the sort of medical care that I had access to when I was 20. I just, I don't have the insurance. The the actual uh, medicine is, you know, a doctor's visit is prohibitively expensive. And the idea that, uh, you know, advances in medical technology are going to keep me alive indefinitely is absurd. You know, I, I can easily be taken out by something that, uh, you know, in better economic times uh, would be no problem. So, you know, th that sort of vision that the Silicon Valley types have is highly conditioned by their own experience. And their experience is one of abundance and, you know, ever increasing technological conveniences. But it you know, the idea that that's going to be shared equally around the world or even around the country or even around the city, you know, in which these people live is demonstrably untrue. You're on Green in the Apocalypse on 3 R. We're going to have to finish up our interview with KMO, who is the person behind the podcast Sea Realm, which you can find out more about at c-realm.com. Uh, but it was really great talking to KMO, wasn't it, Sarah Coles? It surely was. Yeah. He recited Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven during the sound check. 
Yeah, off by heart. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, we, as we commence the wrap-up, we should mention that Radiothon isn't over and there's still one more week and one day that you can subscribe to go into the running for all the major prizes. I've been Adam Grubb. Thank you, Sarah Coles. Thank you. Thank you, Jeb McCartney. My pleasure. Um, hope you get well, Bushy. We'll see you next week. Until then, have all the fun. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.